This episode is brought to you by MeBank, the bank built and supported by industry super funds. Ever wondered about getting a better deal on your home loan? Well, it might be time to get in touch with MeBank. Whatever your investment strategy, you'll find a loan that's right for you with competitive rates and flexible home loan options. So stop wondering and start saving. Call MeBank on 131 563 or visit mebank.com.au. Terms and conditions apply. Now here's the show. I push the limits on my lifestyle and I live larger than a lot of people and I drive Lamborghinis and expensive boats and travel the world. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode on Property Investory, we're speaking with Chris Gray, originally a London career who came to Australia on a backpacking holiday that would change his life forever. You'll learn about Gray's first steps into property, how he built a $15 million portfolio while retiring at only 31 years old. Also, before we delve into this episode, go over to propertyinvestory.com and subscribe to receive your free property investor case studies where you'll learn how to generate passive income from your properties. Go there now to sign up for free. So, what does Gray do in any given day? So, that's always a hard thing. It's, um, it, it changes day by day. And, and that's basically how I wanted my life. So Mondays, I'm always um, kind of recovering and doing Sky News. Hello and welcome to Your Property Empire. I'm Chris Gray. On tonight's show, does it make financial sense to pay more for a property than it's actually worth? And then the other days, quite often it could be in boats, um, supercars, uh, choppers, um, having meetings. I just love meeting people and learning stuff. And uh, part of my time speaking to clients as well and putting deals together. But yeah, pretty much every day is completely different. That's Chris Gray, accountant and property investor from your empire who semi-retired at the age of 31. I'm basically an accountant turned uh, property investor and I basically started investing at 21 or 22 rather and uh, semi-retired out of Deloitte, the accounting firm at 31. I then basically started teaching people what I'd done because everyone said, oh, how can we manage to retire early? In this episode, a man known as a mix of a lifestyle guru and number cruncher used property to fund a living that gives him more choice and flexibility than most dream of. He's the host of Your Property Empire on Sky News Business Channel, he's the property expert on Channel 9's My Home TV and a financial judge on Channel 10's The Renovators. And then I spent a lot of my time doing media on TV and radio and magazines. I guess just teaching everyday Australians through the professionals uh, how to invest in property and how to have more of a money mindset. Gray says he's quite contrarian and doesn't follow the norm. He's got a reasonable sized company with no offices and technically no staff. Ideally, he wanted every day to be different, spending a lot of his time networking and learning. He's involved in various entrepreneurs groups and travels overseas about a week each month living an amazing lifestyle. 
I guess the overall overall riding kind of thing about me is more the lifestyle. So I've always stood up and pretty well known for having having the lifestyle um, of playing with all these toys and not having to work for a living. And I guess that's where I've got a lot of followers because then people aspire, or some people aspire to have that kind of lifestyle as well. But the basis of everything is I make all my money from property. So even though I've got a business, the majority of my money I actually make from uh, by owning my own properties and the properties increasing. And I guess I'm also known as being a bit of a contrarian. So, so the, my philosophy on money is complete opposite to most other people. So to give you some examples, so I've got, say, 14 properties roughly worth about $15 million, maybe in Sydney and some over in the UK, but I, don't, I still don't own my own home. Contrarian indeed. Gray and his family don't own their home to live in. With a property portfolio of $15 million in today's currency, he chose to rent and this is where he challenges traditional thinking. I've got a wife, I've got two kids at um, seven and eight that are at school, so we've got a, a traditional kind of um, family um, family unit, but we don't aspire to own our own home and if we did own our own home, then we'd never pay a cent off it. Um, again, I've, I've mentioned that I've got a business, but I've got no staff, I've got no office. And so having that contrarian mindset is all part of this wealth creation thing that if you want supersonic cars and boats and choppers and big houses and the rest of it, sure, you can just go and buy them, but there's a lot cleverer ways of doing it, kind of like renting or syndicated ownership or buying second-hand cars rather than brand new. And I guess it all comes together, but the ultimate basis is, is yeah, the wealth creation is through property. Instead of going to school, concentrate on their university studies and then follow a career ladder, he shares the reasons why he did the opposite to what most people do. I just did things differently because I thought people create money i.e. from wages and then get into wealth creation to try and then build, build wealth. So why not? I kind of did it in reverse and I thought, why not concentrate on building wealth straight away? And so in Deloitte, they found it really hard to motivate me because I wasn't motivated by money like most other people or bonuses because I was making so much money from property, if they paid me a five or 10 grand bonus, it didn't make any difference. Mm. And so, so this is the problem is, especially the people that are really up at the top end of the ladder, they just do not have any time whatsoever to concentrate on personal finance. So sure, they've got a paid off home, sure, they've got money in the bank and money in super, but it's nothing compared to what they could have uh, if they actually just leveraged it, even 50% or something. Uh, and so... That's why one of the chapters in my book is it's, it's called It's Not About What You Earn, It's What You Do With Your Money That Counts. Mm-hmm. Because I saw some really young, almost PAs that had four or five properties and they had more than the partners that were earning maybe half a million, a million bucks because the PA knew that she was going to be poor because she maybe only earned 50 or 60 grand. And so she knew she had to work hard at a personal wealth. Whereas someone on a high income, they automatically assume they can be wealthy and so they actually get very lazy on their wealth creation. Wealth creation through property is not new at all. Cray says if you want to live a big lifestyle, it is about being creative and finding clever ways to achieve this. And that is what he's done with the family home. Again, what I've worked out then is, is if you buy, say like Monopoly, all of those greenhouses, call those million dollar Bondi two bedroom units with parking, lots of people want those. So the rent returns are pretty high. So normally it's around 4 or 5%. But then I've worked out that five or $10 million homes, not many people can afford to rent them. 
because anyone that can afford to rent them would always buy because there's a perception that only poor people rent. Mm. And so what I worked out about 10 years ago is whatever I could afford to buy, I could rent somewhere three or four times more expensive for the same kind of money. And so that's why I don't rent my own home these days because I can rent something very expensive that's only got a yield of 1% or 2%, but then all of my properties I rent out and get a 4 or 5%. That's how he can live in expensive houses, drive supercars, boats, choppers. Basically, I use the equity in one of those to, uh, to buy a Porsche. And again, the, the thought process with that was, was that I couldn't afford a Porsche on a 30-year loan, but, oh, sorry, on a, a three-year car loan, but I could afford a second-hand Porsche on a 30-year uh, mortgage by effectively pulling equity out and using the equity to buy the Porsche. And give back on charitable causes as well. Maybe back in about 2008, I climbed uh, Kilimanjaro and it was $50,000 each, which obviously is a lot of money. It was a, mainly a donation to charity. But the kind of people that would go to that are people that can afford to either raise $50,000 or write a check for $50,000. So again, it's a lot of the time people say that the average or your wealth will be the average of 10 people that are closest to you that you hang around. And so that's what I do is I hang around entrepreneurs and wealthy people and they hang around climbing up mountains and in supercars and car days and boat days and things like that. So um, yeah, that's where my target audience is. Which, wow. is, uh, which is good fun. Which is fantastic. So they're also your clients and also close friends as well. Would, would that be true to say? Yeah. So typically, I'm lucky enough now, I only work with people I want to work with. So if I don't like people, then I won't work with them. And so it, typically, there's not that much difference between the friend and the client. Um, because if I'm going to work together, then I need to get on with them and I need to like them. And I guess a lot of people become friends to start with and then they learn what I do and then they say, well, my expertise is in shares or it's in business or something else, so can you help me with a property portfolio? And then obviously I help them as a friend and as a client as well. Gray's written a number of books, one in particular on mindset and another similar to Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek. Exactly. So, so when Tim wrote the book, the uh, the Four Hour Work Week, about a year before, I'd actually written a book called How to Turn Your Weekdays into Weekends. So, I how to work two days a week and have five days off versus the other way around. He says Ferris's book were much more popular. He had a, a much better title and a much better book, and he sold billions <laughs> of copies. So, but I guess the mindset's pretty much the same. And so, again, going through his book, I guess. I've done a lot of those things in terms of outsourcing, have virtual assistants or personal assistants, and basically just trying to find a clever way of doing stuff rather than doing things traditionally. Almost like kind of Robert Kiyosaki days of Rich Dad Poor Dad is the old traditional way of go to school, get a good job, go to university, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's not the way we do things these days. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way, but there are sometimes some smarter ways of doing stuff. Coming up after the break... We delved into Gray's journey on how he became a property investor and grew his multi-million dollar portfolio. If I can afford to get a seven times mortgage and get a three-bedroom house, I can rent two rooms out to two mates. And in those days, the rents were around 10 or 12%. That would actually pay the whole of my mortgage off. And hear about how he almost lost everything. 
I was probably almost in negative equity because they, I, was, I was highly geared, maybe 90 or 100% geared anyway. And then the market kind of fell off a bit. And so when I'd really pushed the limit massively, I was down to probably my last 10 or $100 or something like that. And I was almost wishing on heart attack. Hey, podcast listeners, are you enjoying listening to these stories and want more? Then head over to propertyinvestory.com and subscribe to receive your free property case studies that I only send exclusively via email. Just one of the many benefits of being part of this community. These real case studies are from experienced property investors where they share specific numbers of their portfolio, their strategies and much more. Simply visit propertyinvestory.com to get your free case studies. Now back to the show. You've just heard about a man who's used property to fund a living that gives him more choice and flexibility than most dream of. Gray explains his childhood was the catalyst into property. Yep, so um, I grew, grew up back in uh, North London and I finished school at, uh, at 18, got a job as a courier in London. I, I just loved driving, so even though I didn't earn any money, I think I actually was more in debt after I finished working than I was when I started. But I guess how I got into property was I came to Australia backpacking for three or four months, had absolutely no money, uh, lived in the backpackers in Manly Beach in uh, in Sydney. But even though I had no money and I worked seven days a week, you could still go down to the beach for five or six hours, do a day's work and then still go out drinking. And um, it's just an amazing lifestyle. So even if you had no money, you'd have an amazing lifestyle in Australia. And I went back to the UK and my mum actually gave me a curfew and she said, you've got to be back by uh, by midnight. And I said, mum, look, I've travelled all the way around the world. I'm surely I can get back from the local pub. But she said, no, it's my house, my rules, and you've got to be back by midnight. And that was the catalyst because I'd seen what it was like to, to leave home and to be in better places. That that was my catalyst to push me into property. Whereas I guess a lot of my friends hadn't had that backpacking experience and hadn't seen what it was like to, to have your own apartment or, or to live outside from home. And so um, I guess they didn't have the same catalyst that I did. He came from a wealthy family and with the help of his parents, they gave him a good head start in property. Yeah, so so my um, my dad was a heart physician, my mum was a nurse and so they were very much in, into the church and the community. And so they were very non-materialistic. They were... Obviously, I came from a, a pretty wealthy family um, because my dad was a doctor or a high-income family, but they never had any interest in those material kind of things. I mean, that, they gave us a good head start with property. So we had a, a property deposit. So at 22, I earned 10,000 pounds, so about 20, 25,000 Aussie. Mm. And I had a deposit, I think, of about 10 or 15, I think maybe 10,000 pounds in those days. And... Mm. Basically, I, I just worked the numbers. So I looked at what I could afford, which is normally three times your income. So I could afford a thirty or forty thousand pound um, place, which even in those days was a pretty run-down, crappy one-bedroom unit. Um, I then started looking at three-bedroom houses in the best part of town, even though I couldn't afford them, and I fell in love with those kind of things. And I basically set myself a goal and said, "Right, I want this property," and it was one for a hundred thousand pounds. And basically, long story short, what I worked out is, first of all, I could buy that for 80000 because the guy was pretty keen to sell and I wasn't involved in the chain. So as a first home buyer, kind of, it was quite attractive because 
Um, you, you could basically sell it on the property within uh, five or six weeks, so it's nice and clean. And I basically went to the bank and through my dad's guarantee, I said, look, if I buy a 30 or 40 thousand pound place, I'm going to be mortgaged for life. So I'm going to have no money. I can't afford to go out. Whereas if I can afford to get a seven times mortgage and get a three bedroom house, I can rent two rooms out to two mates. And in those days, the rents were around 10 or 12%. That would actually pay the whole of my mortgage off so I could actually live for free. Fantastic. So I then took it to my dad as more of a business case to say, look, dad, I need some help if you can. I'm not after your money. I just need to try and get a guarantee for the bank because the three-bedroom house is going to be free, whereas the one-bedroom unit is going to cost me a fortune. And I just had this kind of mentality. So my school base is very much, I look at normal problems. I translate it into basic numbers, and the basic numbers tell me a different story to what the emotional choice that our parents and our grandparents and society tell us what to do. After he bought the first property at 22 and then another property one year later, he took a break for five years before he moved to Australia. Then at 27, I'd qualified as an accountant and that got me residency for Australia. So I basically jumped on the next boat and came to Australia and emigrated at uh, 27. So now 45, so almost 20 years ago. Gray worked for Dotcom in 2000 and experienced firsthand what it's like to work 80 hours, six days a week. Even though I enjoyed it with young people, we went from like 10 people to about 130 within a few months. Wow. Um, I was working six days a week and then sleeping on the seventh. And I made some money through the dot-com, but basically after it and after the, um, the GFC came about and obviously the shares all collapsed, I then said, well, I don't care how much money I earn. I'm not enjoying the Australian uh, kind of weekends and the lifestyle and the rest of it. And that's when I said, well, to me, life isn't purely about money and I want to live the life and this is what I came to Australia for. And so that's when I left and then I started uh, actually into recruitment and uh, got into uh, Deloitte through recruitment, kind of interviewing CFOs. But that's when I really learned that, um, yeah, you've got to live the life and I met so many unhappy people that hated their jobs uh, through kind of recruitment and interviewing people that that's when I really learned then there's, there's more to life than just working in money. Yeah. You mentioned in your book that you interviewed quite over, quite a number of uh, CFOs and very high net worth type of people and also very high cash flow people um, or high salary, I should say, I think to the to the numbers of over a thousand. And you discovered that there was quite a lot of people who had a lot of income but were very time poor. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that and how something like that um, inspired you to look into property as well? Sure. So, so basically in my recruitment role, then I used to have to try and find the candidates, so I, the financial controllers and the finance directors to put into some of Deloitte's clients as a, as a recruitment firm. And so I basically had to interview 10 people a week, so it wasn't, a, it wasn't too uh, kind of uh, time-performing on me. Mm. But over two years, then that's kind of 100 weeks, so that's about 1,000 people that I interviewed. And most of these guys could do their jobs. They were, they were very successful people. So more the interview process was more getting to know about them personally. And quite often we talk about money and houses and all the rest of it because I had a personal interest around that. And, and this is the thing that I learned was a lot of the people I met that were suddenly in their 40s, 50s and 60s 
they were struggling to get contracting jobs because they were competing against a 30-year-old backpacker from the UK or Ireland that was maybe getting 30 or 40 bucks an hour. And they were arguing, look, I'm a CFO. I used to be on two, three, four hundred thousand and maybe one or two hundred bucks an hour. And so I'm a bargain to, to a firm that wants to hire these people. And I learned it was a very ageist uh, kind of workplace in Australia and, and probably the same in the UK in that a lot of these companies, they, they would rather get the fresh blood in at 30 or 40 bucks an hour, even if someone with 40 years experience would do the same job and maybe do it better because they wanted to mold the young people and train them, whereas someone that's done something for 40 years is maybe more set in their ways. And so I suddenly thought like an accounting job is a job for life, but I suddenly turned, turned out and realized it wasn't. And so suddenly a lot of these people that had their big expensive homes in Mosman, they had kids at private school, they might have a, uh, a wife kind of out shopping or at the gym all day, expensive cars, overseas holidays. And suddenly these guys were battling to get 30 or 40 bucks an hour at the same time. So that's when over that period of two years, I realized that I definitely didn't want a career. And at the same time, I think I was earning about $80,000 to $60,000 off the tax. Gray shares when he purchased his third property and what happened. And so I, I guess it was really just when I came to Australia at 27, then I needed to buy a property to live in because that was always the, the done thing. Um, and so I guess I then just started building up from there. And again, it just kind of happened by chance in a way. So I wasn't aspiring to be a big property investor, but I guess I, I bought the first one in 99. Uh, for 360 in Coogee. Everyone said, oh, it's all going to collapse after the Olympics. You're absolutely mad. I mean, now that property's worth 1.1 or 1.2 or something. And then for some reason, I was going to buy another one in Tamarama. And I think maybe I I just started sort of accumulating stuff and rather than sell it, just refinance and then buy the next one. So again, I'd I don't think it really hit me till about 30 or 31 till I actually kind of gave up work and that's all maybe a year before I gave up work and um, I just happened to be doing something and it just kind of fell into place in a way. So it wasn't necessarily a really defined goal that, that I've set in my, um, in my 20s and 30s. And that's when his properties began to rise in value each year. The property market was really booming in, this was about 2003, 2004. Mm. So I had six, six properties all rising by 100,000 a year for a couple of years. So I was making 600 grand a year from property investing, doing nothing and paying no tax on it and earning 60 grand from Deloitte. <laughs> and this is where the whole puzzle kind of came together. If I can earn 600 grand for doing nothing versus 60 grand for, for working a 40-hour week, then I'd rather take the 600 grand. It's his wealth-building strategy that he believes works. Of course, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> I think any person yeah. in the right mind would I, definitely. I'm not a great accountant, but I was a good enough accountant to work that one out. <laughs> yes, I think that was a no-brainer for, for most people anyway. With the property portfolio that was growing steadily, I asked him what his portfolio is worth in today's market. So I've got, say, 14 properties roughly worth about $15 million. Though he points out it was not all smooth sailing to get the 14 properties he currently owns. I think it's more, so my biggest issue that I've had with investing is I invest too much. So for most people, they don't get off their backside and do anything. 
I've always been uh, too far the other way. So in the UK, you could get into debt at 18. I got into debt at 17, and um, my debt's got just got bigger and bigger. And uh, again, taking on that first mortgage of seven times your income versus three times. So my mortgage repayments were more than my wages before tax, let alone after tax. So I've always kind of got used to debt from an early age. But look, in probably the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, I was probably almost in negative equity because they, I, was, I was highly geared, maybe 90 or 100% geared anyway, and then the market kind of fell off a bit, and so it's it's um, kind of 50-50 whether my properties would have actually um, paid off my debt. But again, going to see the accountants and getting all the good advice that I got, and from people like Angus Rain from Rain and Horn, he was a very, very generous guy that um, gave me a lot of his time to help me. And, and a lot of these guys said, look, Chris, you've got to hang on to your portfolio. If you sell your portfolio, you're going to end up with no assets and you'll still have some debt and you'll never be able to repay that debt. Whereas whether you beg, borrow or steal or obviously maybe not steal, but um, get five jobs and just hang on because I think at the time I had about three and a half million in property and all you need is to get 10% growth and you suddenly make $350,000 and suddenly all your problems are over. And so... I think in the, the age from probably 30 to 40, there was various different times when I'd really pushed the limit massively. I was down to probably my last 10 or $100 or something like that. And I was almost wishing on heart attacks to claim on my insurance and hopefully survive the heart attacks to then get the payout <laughs> to try and get myself out of a rut. And it, it was very, very tough. So at times I've had years of sleepless nights. So this is the, the downside. Oh. So... It's not all positive and a lot of the speakers and people say, oh, it's so easy and it feels easy in hindsight, but at the times, and it's all my own doing and I did it knowingly and I was willing to take those risks to then have the upside on the uh, on when the market did move. But look, there was some a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of stress and stuff like that because I was pushing the limits um, beyond what most other people would do. Then there were many aha moments for Gray, allowing him to achieve the success he has today. Yeah, so probably the biggest one, or I guess there's lots of little ones along the way, from even from owning that first property. I remember coming down the stairs and I had had a uh, nothing in the house whatsoever because I had no money, no furniture, but I had a hundred pound um, IKEA futon mattress and a case of warm beers. And in the UK, we, we used to drink warm beers, so you didn't even need the fridge. Just uh, room temperature beers was, was fine. But that was one of my proudest moments. Um, I think refinancing the Porsche, again, was another massive one. And I didn't, I didn't know what I'd done. I didn't know about refinancing. And I did a joint venture with my dad. I, I didn't know what joint ventures was, but I did one. I just do logical things, and then I've learned what they're kind of called afterwards. Um, I think the day I retired from work at Deloitte and I sent an email to everyone saying, I'm retiring, I'm no longer going to be on this email, is, again, a very, very proud moment. You've got to wake up and say, hey, I have got an amazing life. And, I mean, today I'm sitting in my, I guess, home office looking at the um, the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge thinking, I never, ever thought I could have this kind of lifestyle if I look back 20 or 30 years into my kind of late teens and early 20s. I'd have no dream and a purple Lamborghini downstairs and a boat on the harbour and 
all of these kind of things. It just sits there and it's just normal stuff now, which is, um, yeah, you've still got to pinch yourself, I guess, in a way. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Many people have asked, what is his logic in buying all these luxury stuff that he'll never pay off? So with the Porsche thing then, a lot of people said, yeah, but you're using debt to finance luxury goods that are depreciating assets, which is true. But if my property has gone from 80 to 100,000 pounds and I've made 20,000, a lot of people would sell that and then go and buy a 20,000 pound car. And they think they've made 20 grand and that's good, but then they haven't got an asset. Whereas by me accessing, and I think I borrowed 10 to 15,000 pounds, then I still kept that 100 grand property, which then grew to 110 and 120. So I'm still making that. So even if I sold it at any time, at least I'd still have the equity there. So I wasn't kind of chewing up too much equity, but the main thing was I still kept the appreciating asset and that was going up by more than the depreciating asset or the car was actually going down. Mm, so therefore, your asset was making more money than your depreciation liability, which obviously makes more sense because even if you sold your, your Porsche that was holding a value, you still get money back anyway and the cost or the coverage of your asset would be able to pay that off eventually. Exactly. And so I think this is a really strong point to make is I'm very much a believer in rewarding yourself as you go. Mm. So I got into massive debt at 22 and at 24 and I think at 24, when I bought the second property, I then refinanced and then bought the uh, bought the Porsche. And it's to reward yourself. So, so sure, I hadn't worked physically hard, but I've worked mentally hard to suddenly have two assets that were worth maybe 200,000 pounds in the UK then um, at 24. And why not then take the money off the table at the same time as well? Yeah. So don't, don't save it all up. Yeah. Don't squander it all. But there, there's a bit of a balance in between. Having balance is the key when building a property portfolio and Gray says that you've got to enjoy the journey. He admits he hasn't reached the top of the mountain just yet and has many goals he's yet to accomplish. I guess my next goal is really just having enough of a buffer. So I'm probably about 60% geared on my portfolio um, and I guess I, I really wanted to get down to about 50 to then have 30% of buffer, ideally in cash, so that no matter what happened with interest rates rising or if I completely stopped work and didn't have any income coming in, then I kind of wanted enough cash for maybe 10 or 15 years that I didn't have to worry about no, no matter what. But look, I mean, if, if interest rates did suddenly double to 10 or 12%, then my cash flow position would be massively changed. Um, I think I'd still be still be fine because I in my book I still work on interest rates of seven, eight, and nine percent. So I do kind of stress test myself, but I'd just rather have a lot more excess buffer, excess cash, just to counter anything that might happen in the future. Um, and so that that's the next thing on my uh, on my to do list, which is again part of a journey that will probably take another one or two years or something like that. Wow, that's very exciting, actually to be actually be able to do that because I think a lot of people strive to get to, to where you are, especially when you've got a portfolio of $15 million um, on 14 properties. It, it, it's actually a stretch goal to be able to achieve something like that. Yeah, because I mean, part of it's greed. So say, say the market goes up 10%, so I make say one and a half million. And if I can give 80%, then I can maybe pull $1.2 million out in cash subject to serviceability. 
Now, it would be very tempting to go and buy another $5 million worth of property with that and obviously mm. gear that million up to um, uh, by 80%. But what I've learned is, is whether you've got 10, 20, 30, 40 million, after you get to a certain point, you don't really do much more with the money. It is then quite often a greed thing or just a, a, a tally score against someone else. So I would rather have 15 million in property and 30 million in cash than have 20 million of property and no cash in the bank. Mm. Because if interest rates go um, up or the market crashes or all of these things, which I don't think are going to happen, then the whole house of cards could all fall down like dominoes and then suddenly you're, you're, you're left with nothing. And so I'm trying not to be greedy and trying to be grateful for what I've got and trying to be more conservative to then say, no, look, I'd rather have the 15 million and, and build up a couple of million in, in spare equity or spare cash than constantly trying to be 20 million or 30 million or 40 million. Because um, say my car is, um, was a three quarters of a million dollar Lamborghini. Now it's, um, I bought it uh, eight or nine years old for 250. It's now worth maybe three, 350. So it's actually kind of come up the curve and it's almost starting to increase now. Sure, I'd love the latest Aventador, which is a million dollars for a convertible. I can afford to buy one, but I, I can't justify one. And so if I really kept pushing myself, sure, I could afford a brand new car and I could afford a much better place to live and a brand new boat or something like that. But the incremental satisfaction you get from going from a 10-year-old car to a brand new one is very, very small. And whether you're in a $5 million home or 7 or $10 million, again, it doesn't really change. It changes massively from a half million dollar home to a million or a half million to two million, but the difference between a five and a seven million dollar home doesn't make that much difference. And so again, it's just trying to learn from these other people to say, if you constantly keep pushing the limits, at some point it's all going to crack and, and something's going to go wrong. Moving forward into the future, this is what Gray is really excited about now. So, um, I just try and find new things to go and do. So, one, one of the uh, organizations I'm involved in is called the Entrepreneurs' Organization. And there's about 12,000 of us uh, worldwide. And you basically need to be the founder of a business, uh, turning over at least a million dollars. And there's a, a few other criteria. But I, I probably changed about two-thirds of my friends a few years ago to just hang out with a lot of these guys. Because where a lot of friends before were typical employees and they did their kind of eight to late and then they go home and watch TV and have the meat and two veg at home and then uh, come time with the family. With a lot of these entrepreneurs, there is no rules. And especially when you go overseas, a lot of them, the Asian families are third generation, so they might have billion dollar companies. But whether you turn over a billion or a, or a million, you're all equal around the table. And this is a big um, philosophy of the organization and there's no judgment and there's no ego. And so I travel around a lot of Asia and around the rest of the world just seeing these other guys all learning off each other and we've all got different things to teach each other and um, I just love the learning now. So I spend a lot of time, not so much reading books, but just listening to speakers and, and listening to people that have actually done stuff and I go to countries that I've never even heard of like Komodo where the Komodo dragons are which is uh, an island in uh, Indonesia. It's a various places in China I've never even heard of. And so uh, I think we're off to Mexico in, um, in March and then Seoul and then Fukuoka in, in Japan. So I'm traveling to all these uh, amazing places, meeting lots of amazing people 
and I'm just learning new things. And, and that's what I strive for these days is just to meet interesting people, learn things I haven't even thought of and come up with other ideas of things I can put on my bucket list and uh, go off and enjoy it. Inspired by this story and what Chris Gray is excited about today, we will keep the conversation going in a future episode on Property Investory Podcast where we talk about how to apply the strategy. My strategy, I, I quite often say, is it's so basic, it's kind of too simple for most clever people. So most people are trying to outthink it, trying to think there's something special, that there must be some hidden secret that I'm not telling them or, or someone else isn't telling them. To success habits for property investing? That's the whole thing with wealth is if you don't talk about money, you don't share it, there's no way you're going to get very clever at it because you're only going to learn at the, your own learning pace rather than someone that's um, maybe 20 years ahead of you. And that's next time on Property Investory Podcast. To get the full transcript and see the show notes, visit our website at propertyinvestory.com. Thanks for listening.